For our scripture reading, we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Chapter speaks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And the work of that Spirit and the calling that we have to hold to the truth that the Spirit that the Spirit speaks. And we read the chapter, Second Timothy chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. <coughs> Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. <coughs> this thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day, and in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning, and on the basis of what we read and the rest of Scripture is the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 20. There we read, 
What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that he has also given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all his benefits, that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come in God's providence to Lord's Day 20 on the work of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, we are mindful of the fact that that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us as we read, that Holy Spirit guides the church into truth. And we are called by the grace of God to cling to that truth and to walk in harmony with that truth and to show that we love that truth and are thankful to our God. We consider that also this morning in connection with the, the Protestant Reformation that took place some 500 years plus ago. 500 years ago, half a millennium. And we, to this day, we remember that event when God guided the church in her understanding of the truth, and there was a breakaway from the Romish church, the Roman Catholic church, and churches forming, churches that were forming in, in, in different countries where the truth was being taught, a return to the truth of the word of God. And that that's what the Refor a Reformation is. When there has been a departure from the truth, and it's quite something how much of a departure there was, so that at the time of the Reformation, it really was the case that churches were being, that people were coming out of a church, forming into churches, and referring to the church that they came out of as a false church. As it's right in our confessions, in our Reformed confessions. At that time, that really was the case. That really was accurate, that the departure had been that bad. And God guided his church into truth and a confession of the truth. A return to what scripture teaches. And we often talk about three areas in which there is a return to a confession of the truth. A, a return to a confession of the truth concerning doctrine, the doctrine of the, of the gospel, the good news of salvation by Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone, justification by faith alone, an unconditional covenant, a return to the truth of the word of God concerning doctrine, also return to what scripture says about worship. There had been a departure, a great departure concerning what God, the instruction God gives to us concerning what's supposed to take place in the worship of the church. That we are to worship in no other way than the way he has commanded us in his word. And there was great departures concerning worship. And a third area is the area of church government. 
It had gotten so bad that the church had formed into a hierarchy with one person as the, as the pope. And all the corruption with regard to discipline, instead of disciplining those walking in sin that they were coming against and persecuting those that were holding to the truth. So that it was a return also in the realm of church government, doctrine, worship, and church government, a return to the truth of the word of God, that they went back also to the confessions of the past and even brought in and made reference, even made reference to the confessions of the past. Our Heidelberg Catechism brought the Apostles' Creed into the confession and explained it, for example. A return to what has been taught in the past and also that God's people moved forward in their understanding, guided by the Spirit. We often bring that out, too, with regard to a reformation. A reformation is not only a return so that you, when you were going off track, you get back on track. Like if you were going, if you had been going the right way and the church had turned and gone the wrong way, not only do you get back on track, but also a movement forward. And it is amazing how God guided the church to confess in such detail. The truths that we have that have been passed down, the, the, the doctrines that we have had passed down to us in quite a bit of detail. And then we are to hold on to that word of truth and to grow in our own understanding of it and to show that our confession is not just an external confession that we like to argue and show that we're right and other people are wrong and then we don't in our life we don't live it that's not the way it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the case that we not only confess the truth but we show our love for that truth that as we read in verse 13 hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. We consider this Lord's Day under the theme by the Spirit who dwells in us. We consider, first of all, partaking of Christ by the Spirit. We partake of Christ and his benefits. Secondly, we look at it from a viewpoint of being guided into truth. And specifically, we look at the truth of the, the authority of Holy Scripture sola scriptura and then thirdly strengthening us to persevere by the spirit who dwells in us partaking of christ guided into truth strengthened to persevere what believest thou concerning the holy ghost first that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. True God, co-eternal, not subordinate. There have been those that have been speaking of the Spirit as subordinate. And it is not the case that the Spirit is subordinate. There's not subordination when you talk about the three persons of the Trinity. When you talk about Jesus as a man, Jesus, from the viewpoint of his, of his human nature, he's submissive to God. But when we talk about the three persons of the Trinity, there is no subordination. The Spirit is a person. He speaks. And we read in Scripture of places where the Spirit spoke bringing out the idea that he's a person. 
he speaks. He's the breath of God. He's the one person who is breathed forth. The term spirit could be translated as breath. And the spirit is breathed forth from the Father. The spirit is breathed forth from the Son. He is the breath of God. He is the power of God. The eternal power and might of God. Our Belgic Confession says that. That's good for us to remember that. I think we're, it's common for us to remember that the Son is the Word. The book of John begins with that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so on. But we're familiar with the idea that the Son of God is the Word of God. He's the image of God. He's the wisdom of God. The Spirit, the power of God. The eternal power and might of God, as we confess in the, in the Belgian Confession. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. That is biblical language. When we refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, that's found in like 1 Peter 1 verse 11. Romans 8, verse 9, it is biblical language that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Now, that's still referring to the same person, the third person of the Trinity. Why is he called the Spirit of Christ? Well, he was promised to Christ. We read that when Christ ascended, he received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and poured out the Holy Spirit into his church. So the pure spirit is promised to Christ and is sent by Christ. And it's by that spirit that we partake of Christ and all his benefits. And that is a key point to understand about the work of the spirit. So Christ died for us. He purchased for us all these blessings. How do they get to us? How do all the blessings that Christ purchased for us, how do they get to you, to me? They get to us by the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that we receive them. We receive the Spirit and by the Spirit, we partake of Christ and all his benefits. And that's what the catechism goes on and says that he has also given me to make me by a true faith, and we're going to talk about that, Central, a central work of the Spirit is that he is the one who works in us faith. We partake of all these blessings by faith. How do we get Faith. Well, the Spirit is the one who works in us faith. That the Spirit has given me to make me by a true faith partaker of Christ and all, all his benefits. That's how they get to me. That's how salvation brings out the idea of salvation being all of God. Christ died for us, purchased the blessings for us, and then the Spirit applies them to us, applies unto us that which we have in Christ. And the blessings that Christ has purchased, the Spirit will give to us. It's not, the idea is not that Christ purchased all these blessings, but whether the Spirit applies it to you depends upon your activity. So that your activity is the reason why you receive the benefits when others don't. That is the way a lot of people present it. They have Christ dying for all human beings. That God wants to save all human beings. Christ dies for all human beings. But whether or not those <laughs> gifts are applied to you 
depends upon something you do. Well, the scriptures say that the blessings that Christ hath purchased for us, the Spirit does apply to us. And that's the way we speak in our baptism form. When we're baptized in the name of God the Father, and then we talk about the Son, and then we talk about the Holy Spirit, that he will dwell in us. He will dwell in us and sanctify us, applying unto us that which we have in Christ. He will do that. The Spirit unites us works in us faith, unites us to Christ. We are engrafted into Christ by faith. The Spirit is given to us, unites us to Christ, and grafts us by faith. And in Him, we have life. The Spirit gives life. That actually was what's referred to in the Nicene Creed already. The Spirit is the one who gives life. Where many people would have it that the Spirit that God offers life. As if that makes any sense to offer life to someone who's dead. The scriptures say that we're spiritually dead. By nature, man is dead. Going to a dead person and offering him life? The Spirit gives life. Christ quickens us by his Spirit. We are said to be begotten of the Spirit. In John 3 and John chapter 1. And he brings us, we are by one spirit baptized into the one body of Christ. Which brings out the importance too of us being a member of the body of Christ in the sense of the church institute. That's brought out in baptism, too. Somebody who is baptized, well, it's the church that administers baptism. And the child that is baptized is then a baptized member in, of that instituted church. The Spirit in, uh, engrafts us into Christ by faith. We are by one Spirit baptized into one body, and we are to be members on this earth were to be members in a church institute which is a manifestation of the body of Christ and that's where we're to be a member of the church institute and if there is not a sound church institute a church that bears the marks of the true church in our midst then there may be times when we have to move and there have been God's people, there are many of God's people who have moved and left everybody, they left people they knew and gone to places that they'd never been, that they might be where the truth was proclaimed. The Spirit who dwells in us, He causes us to partake of all the benefits of Christ. Now secondly, we look at it from the viewpoint of the Spirit's work of guiding us into truth. Many speak contrary to Scripture. And we can easily be persuaded we have sinful natures is a danger for us and for, for our children to be listening to this world and its ideas and spending lots of time listening to what 
is commonly being taught in our day and spending relatively little time actually reading the scriptures themselves or reading sound works that explain the scriptures or our confessions say. But instead of spending the time searching the word as we ought to be listening to those that are really teaching that which is contrary. And as time goes on, one isn't as familiar with the wording of scripture. And that in the generations, we can start to have children that aren't that, all that familiar with the wording of scripture. The Spirit guides us, the Spirit guides us into truth, and we are to hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard, that we have heard. Now the scripture is what the Spirit speaks. That's important too. Somebody can, there are those that, talk as if God is giving them some special message that's not actually found here, that God has somehow spoken to them and told them some message for them personally that really is an addition to one we have here. This is what the Spirit says. For example, in the book of Revelation, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Well, what the Spirit saith to the churches is recorded there. And though that, you know, there's a reference right there in the, the, those uh, second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches that are recorded in those chapters. And a reference to what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear what the Spirit says. Well, it's found right there in Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. Passage that says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means all Scripture is literally God-breathed. Well, the Spirit is the breath of God. The Scriptures are God-breathed. We have what the Spirit says right here in Holy Scripture. And the Spirit guides us to understand the Word. When one is going to God desiring understanding, of course, many go to Scripture for a different reason than that. Many have something that they want to do and then they go to the scriptures to try to show that it's okay and to try to find ways to when they find passages that say it's not okay then they find some way to be able to make to change what the scriptures say there so that it doesn't actually say that it's sinful and so they go to Scripture, trying, or they try to find a verse that they can, that it can appear, they can make it appear as if it promotes what they want it to say. If we're going to the Scripture to try to find proof that we can do something that really God says we cannot do, or that we can teach something that really is not what God has taught, then one is not going to the scripture with the right motivation. If somebody is going to scripture really desiring to know the truth and desiring to do what is to the glory of God, and when we come to God asking him to guide us, he does guide us into truth. He has said the spirit would guide us into truth. Individually, he guides us in our understanding, but also as... He has guided the church in the past. He has guided the church to understand the truth. He works faith in us by the proclamation of the gospel. 
and confirms it by the use of the sacraments. And that brings out, too, this morning we spent a few moments talking about that fundamental truth of the authority of Scripture, that Scripture is the one infallible authority and the idea that we must hold to what Scripture says. These two ideas, that on the one hand, that Scripture is the only infallible authority, and secondly, that the Reformation wasn't teaching a rejection of all authority, but saying that Scripture is authoritative, and we must hold to it, as it says here, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. We must hold to it. Well, first of all, what sometimes has been called the formal principle of the Reformation, this was a fundamental, fundamental principle of the Reformation. The teaching of the sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, meaning scripture is the only infallible authority. That's what Martin Luther so many years ago was guided to confess, and he was being pressured to recant things that he had said. And he stood holding to Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church said that they were the ones that had the, you know, that the church is guided to explain the scriptures and they have these unwritten traditions in, a different, in addition to the scriptures they had this pile of unwritten traditions and the church was going to tell the people what the Bible said and the people were just to believe whatever the church told them was the truth. Really trusting the church to tell them what the truth was. In fact, they were even against the idea of the scriptures being in the hands of the people in their language. Something that we today, it's just so common to us that we all have the scriptures and all of our children can have the scriptures. And at a young age, they often have their own Bibles and that we find Bibles, you know, in the, in the church, we've got Bibles in the pews, we've got Bibles in our homes, we've got Bibles where we teach catechism and all. We're familiar with the fact that we've got these copies of the Bibles all around, and it's easy to forget that that was not the case. That everybody had a sound, a sound translation too? Of the Bible? Easily accessible? And of course, when a church is teaching what is not true, well, then it's understandable. They wouldn't want the people to be able to read for themselves a sound translation and then be able to see that this is not what we're hearing. This is not what we're doing. And be able to see the difference between what was being taught and what was being practiced. Things that were being done that there's nowhere in the Bible that you read of them. The practice of indulgences. Luther... We often date the Reformation back to 1517. And the time that Luther pinned up that 
attach those ninety five pieces ninety five pieces are like ninety five sentences they are really short you can actually read easily find them online you could do a search and read these ninety five rather short sentences and he was wanting there to be discussion on these points and he was specifically against the roman catholic practice of selling indulgences an indulgence was something that could be purchased that would free somebody from the penalty of sin the temporal penalty or punishment for for sin and that that teaching of indulgences is actually still the case today, although they say they don't sell them the way that they did back in Luther's day. They still speak of indulgences today, the Romish Church. This is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, so somebody can pick this up and read this. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. And they make a point of that. They say the guilt is already forgiven, but there still needs to be this remission of a temporal punishment that somebody may have to suffer uh, also after this life in purgatory. That there's a temporal punishment. You know, Christ, Christ has died, suffered, and died, yet there's still a temporal punishment that people must suffer. And they talk of that with regard to their do false doctrine of purgatory. Well, one can, if one has an indulgence, an indulgence is a remission before God of that temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions and then the church will tell you what you have to do to get an indulgence go on a pilgrimage etc the various things do a charitable deed and so on under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church which as the minister of redemption the church is called the minister of redemption who dispenses, the church dispenses and applies with authority the treasure of, <coughs> of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. They talk about these, these merits of the saints and that the church dispenses and applies this treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. And it says, an indulgence is partial or plenary, which means full, according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves or they can apply them to the dead. You can get them for the dead, your dead loved ones, too. That is still the teaching of the Romish church today. Wasn't that long ago, in the year 2000, that the Pope spoke of there being, by, with a papal bull, about the granting of indulgences. in connection with the upcoming change into the new millennium. Well, Luther was speaking against that, specifically against the, the sale of them, and, and, and he spoke against the practice of indulgences and wrote these 95 theses that were, and he wanted there to be discussion on that, and he was told to recant and he was put in a position when he was told to recant 
that he said if he can be shown to be an heir from the scriptures that he would if he if you could show him from the scriptures that he was wrong that he then you know he 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 admit he was what he what he said was wrong but he was going to hold to the scriptures when people say well you're going against papal authority if the pope says it then that's the way it is and he says that this is the this is the sole infallible authority a church can err councils when they meet can err we say our confessions could have errors in them we don't say they're infallible and if someone points it out we'll change it this is the sole infallible authority and that's where luther made that statement that he was bound to hold here i stand he was going to stand on scripture he said he was bound he was bound to hold to what scripture said now that brings out too that the reformation was not about a rejection of all authority the people that want to get rid of authority freedom being free from authority is then you're free free to do whatever you think you should do free to do whatever you feel you should do free to do whatever you desire to do to do what's in harmony with who you are who want, that people will say that who they are is what they desire what they desire to do determines what they are to do because what they desire to do that's what they are and they need to be free to do what what's in harmony with who they are we must hold to what scripture says is the truth concerning the doctrines we hold to and concerning the practices and there will be great opposition to that we first of all need to learn what scripture says hold fast the form of sound words that idea it's interesting it refers there to the form of the sound words we have to hold to sound words. Sound, we often talk about sound doctrine. Here's sound words. Sound is that which is healthy, that which is not corrupt, that which is healthy, which would promote then health. And there's a benefit of the form of it too, in the, uh, the form of sound words. The idea that what we have in scripture is the rule. And what we say has to be in line with what we read of here and there is a benefit of us looking at the way scripture explains things and phrases that are used and with today it's it's much easier today to search these kind of things what adjectives does scripture use to describe something what kind of prepositional phrases are used in connection with different terms what are the most common ones when we have a certain something we're teaching well how does what is scripture how does scripture word that and to keep going back to scripture to make sure that the way we say something is in line with the way it is said in scripture that it's in harmony with not that every statement we make is going to be that you can find it word by word in the scripture but everything we say has to be in harmony with the scriptures 
And it's important to see and take note of the biblical wording in the New Testament and in the Old. And to believe these words. Not simply that you know what the truth is and you can argue it. But that you show you believe it. Believe these words. That we show that we love what has been, the truth has been handed down to us. And that we delight to talk about, you, del- you delight to talk about what, you, what is important to you. To discuss these things and to pray God to guide us, to confess we've got much to learn. Every passage you st- we study, you very quickly have lots of questions. The depth of this, what is made known to us, is so astounding. And we constantly ask God to guide us. And we have to look closely. Sometimes we read a verse, and on the surface, we think we know what it means. But then as we look closer to it and its context and pray that God guide us, we start seeing that perhaps we did have it right right away. But it could also be that, oh, we didn't have it quite right as to what it was talking about there. And now doing some more searching into it, come to understand it more that we did. The Spirit guides us into truth. And we're to pray for that guidance that our thoughts and words and actions may be in harmony with God's word to his glory. And we ask God to strengthen us to persevere. Paul in this context says to Timothy, his son in the faith, Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Verse 8. Don't be ashamed. You and I know that if we speak up about what we believe in many circles, there will be mockery, there will be ridicule, sometimes we'll see anger, hatred. We're not to be ashamed of the testimony of of the Lord. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoners. Paul went into prison, faithfully teaching the truth. He was a sinner like we are. He was guided to understand the truth and to be a teacher of that truth, a preacher of the gospel put into prison and then others would see here's a faithful minister and they they throw him in prison and one might be afraid be not ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me as prisoner and then later in chapter 2 he says endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We need to be strengthened. God calls us. God calls us. Stand fast. Hold to the traditions. That is the word of truth as it's been passed down to us. Hold on to that word, even though there's many that deny it, both with regard to the truth that we are to teach and the and doctrines and also the practice, both with regard to church worship and with regard to church government and practical matters concerning marriage and so on. Hold to that truth, even in the midst of opposition. Being strengthened by the Spirit who dwells in us. 
keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us, verse 14. The good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost. We pray for God to strengthen us. We mentioned the Spirit in the last petition of the, in our explanation of the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. When we talk about our enemy that ceases not to be, ceases not to exalt us, assault us, we ask God to strengthen us by the power of the Spirit. That we're so weak we wouldn't stand. We need strength. We ask God to strengthen us. And God tells us the Spirit is in you. The spirit that you and I need is in us. He dwells in us. He comforts us that we might not fear. It says that he may comfort me and abide with me forever. The spirit dwells in us. He comforts us. He abides with us. And he tells us that he... He assures us that he will be with us forever. The words that are in the scripture tell us. The words that the spirit speaks, he tells us that he will abide with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. The spirit who's conforming us to Christ. Who assures us we belong to Christ, that we're not our own. That we belong to our Savior. And that he will finish the work he has begun. The spirit who is the earnest. That we receive the spirit as an earnest. The beginning of what's promised. With the assurance that we will receive all the full, re, the full realization of all of what God has promised us. What a joy we have. We have comfort and peace, and yet the battle remains. May we be thankful for what has been handed down to us. And may we faithfully pass that down to the coming generation. May we learn ourselves. May we show that we hold to the authority of Scripture, and if God says it, then it's so. And no matter what anybody else says, if God says it, it's so. And that we always show our children, this is where we go for the answers. We go to the Word of God, and that together we walk with our God, who teaches us, who strengthens us, by the Spirit who dwells within us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and our Father, we are thankful, O Lord, for thy grace, thankful for the comfort of the Spirit of Christ, thankful for that truth that has been passed down to us, an understanding of that truth, and as we have much to learn and as we also need to be strengthened in the midst of opposition, Lord, teach us. Lord, strengthen us. And Lord, comfort us and our children to glorify and praise thy name. We are so thankful for that word of truth. May we proclaim it faithfully to thy honor and may our life be in harmony with that word. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.